Earth 2, a world much like our own, yet slightly different. There, young and old have banded together to battle evil. They are the heroes of World War II, as well as their sons and daughters, protégés and godchildren. Two True Freaks presents The Tales of the Justice Society of America! And welcome to a very special episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America, episode number 77, as a matter of fact. I am Michael Bailey, and with me, as always, is my good friend, Scott Gardner. Now, special as in, like, special, not special as in, like, special. Like yeah, not special ep- as in we wear hockey equipment, but don't play for a team. <laughs> right. So. Like, like last uh, episode with... Uh, <sighs> Infinity Inc. number four. <laughs> that that was that was a special. That was episode, a very it? special episode. <laughs> Put it on the bus. Yes. No, this one's special as in holy shit, that's awesome special. Yes. Um, it's a weird one too because when, when Scott and I started this show, uh, <laughs> okay. back in 1982. Yes, ba- back in back in 1982 when I was seven and he was <laughs> 30. Um, yeah, that was an old joke. No, but but the thing is, is that you can kiss my white ass, all right? Okay. You you can bet, you can put money on, folks, that if Scott and I have ever talked about a comic book, we have talked about podcasting about that comic book. Yes. <laughs> we went to dinner once. It was the first time Scott and I ever met face to face. We talked about like sixteen series, and every single one, I think both of us were like, "Yeah, we could podcast about that." Yeah. Um, just because one, it's fun to podcast with Scott, and two, you know, <laughs> the fun of podcasting with Scott is that we will be along that same road, and then sometimes I'll veer off, and, and it leads <laughs> and crash to and crash. Um, when we started Tales, one of the things that we wanted to cover was you know some of the other things that are kind of associated with Earth 2 and the Golden Age and World War 2 and you know specifically especially when we got into All-Star Squadron and on separate episodes of Back to the Bins we discussed both of the Superman Spider-Man meetups mm-hmm. and for literally years we're like we have got to get to the others in that series we've never done the Incredible Hulk Batman one which we have to kind of get off our asses to do. Yeah. But we figured the best place for the other two that were really big around this time, and no, I'm not talking about the Rudolph ones. 
Though, I have since found that those Rudolph treasuries, that if sales of those could be measured appropriately, Rudolph should have been a member of the JLA. Right. <laughs> uh, because apparently they sold like gangbusters. There's There were a few, though, that one... <laughs> To be fair, when we get to it in a couple of weeks, it's going to be tangential at best, but it kind of felt right to do it there, considering what's coming up in All-Star Squadron. Yes. But the other, because not only does it take place in World War II, but it also features Baron Blitzkrieg. Mm -hmm. We decided we were going to cover, for this episode, Superman Superman versus versus Wonder Woman. Woman. Dun, dun, dun. I'm glad you went into all that. I wasn't, I wasn't sure if you had anything prepared for the opener. Um, yeah, I want to express basically the same sentiments. But also, for me, there, there, were, there were other reasons as well, is that, you know, as you kind of touched upon, with this show, I mean, we almost at one point spun off uh, a spinoff of this show, which uh, would have been Tales of Earth 2 or Tales from Earth 2 or something. I don't think we ever really named it. But we wanted to do something that would cover stories of Earth 2 that weren't necessarily Justice Society stories, but just stories of Earth 2. That never really happened for a good number of reasons, most of them being time reasons. I mean, you know, we have, have had a, you know, a, a troubled enough history just getting this show out you know, on a regular basis and everything. We didn't really need other projects. But also, a lot of that other stuff, I don't know how ultimately interesting it would be, like covering all the Earth 2 adventures of Wonder Woman and the Huntress. Because I've read a lot of that stuff, you know, when I was really, really intent on we were going to cover it and we were going to be super authoritative. And yeah, a lot of it's, uh, I'll, be, I'll be honest, it's kind of a slog. However, this one's always been on the docket. This has always been something that you and I wanted to do. And we pretty much knew that we wanted to cover it here. I think originally the plan was to cover this when we got to it in the timeline of Earth 2. However, now really feels like the time for a number of different reasons. Probably the primary reasons being we have now covered both of the Superman versus Spider-Man oversized books, which, you know, as we'll get to, this book is actually tied to those, believe it or not. Also, as Mike said, you know, we're about to cover uh, another one of the large Superman versus books that's going to tie into something we'll be covering that is directly JSA related, you know, co- uh, coming up in um, All-Star Squadron. Um, but also for me, and I don't know if this, this really uh, occurred to you, Mike, or not, but it, it kind of hit me while I was synopsizing this. We'll never make it to where this book would happen in the timeline because the crisis happens. Mm-hmm. The crisis will eliminate this. St- well, sort of. I had completely forgotten until I was reading uh, an article about this comic, but while this story is done away with by the crisis on infinite earths, it is retold as a post crisis story in Young All-Stars. I'd forgotten that, and Mm -hmm. so that'll be interesting when we get there. So by doing this now, eventually we'll get to see it both ways. We'll get to see it the way it originally happened with Superman versus Wonder Woman, but then later we'll get to see how it unfolds as a post-crisis tale 
where these heroes unfortunately never existed. So, and, and here's another kind of funny thing about this one. It's Earth 2, but it's a different Earth 2. Yeah, well, yeah, that's something that uh, I was going to... Uh, it's kind of covered a little bit in my synopsis, but then I also figured that you and I would really get into that in-depth. Um, we we can know, hold over, off on that until... Well, the, I'm, I'm the, not saying let's hold off. I'm just saying that, you know, yeah, I, I definitely noticed that. It's funny, too, because I'm, I struggle to remember... Where did I get this book? Because I know I didn't buy it brand new. I, I know that, you know, it wasn't one of those off-the-rack purchases or anything. I don't think a parent bought it for me. I think I got it as a back issue. I have no memory of where I got it. I just know I've had it for a long, long time. It's probably one of the oldest comics in my collection as far as what I mean is is one I've owned the longest, you know, but I, I just don't recall how I acquired it, but I read it over and over again. But as little as I was, when I first acquired this and everything, I knew there was something not right. And what I mean is this should be the earth to Superman versus the earth to wonder woman. And it is in the course of the story, but in the course of the artwork, it's clearly not. It's clearly and there's and there's one very big thing that makes it not. Uh, and I'll, right, yeah, I think I think yeah, I think I know what you're going to go for. All right, well, I think we're ready to just go ahead and dive right into this. I believe we are. All right, so this officially the title of this book is all new, and I want to stress that there's no hyphen in that, and I stress that only because when I've tried to look this up online, uh, a lot of places uh, have it listed both ways, but the actual official title from the Indicia is all new collector's edition. Again, no hyphen between the all and the new. Collector's edition number C54, Superman versus Wonder Woman. This was on sale according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics October 13th, 1977. Original cover price on this, this will blow your mind. 2 bucks. And it certainly has uh been worth those 2 bucks because I have been desperate for a uh, a nicer copy of this one for some time. In Interior-wise, mine's in pretty good shape. It is fairly brown on the in, uh, inside pages, I'll admit. It's hard to keep these oversized books in really nice shape. Yeah. But my the cover on mine, unfortunately, you know, there's it doesn't really have creases or, or scuffs or anything, but it's badly, badly, badly yellowed. Um, anyway, I'm desperate to get a new one. I've been watching it on eBay. This sucker doesn't go cheap. So, yeah, that $2 investment <laughs> definitely pays off for people. Cover on this by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. <laughs> and Dan Adkins. Depicting basically two feral-looking superheroes. Superman charging at Wonder Woman. She's got her hands held completely claw-like. Like, she's just ready to just rip his eyes out. He has his fists balled up, and he looks like he's going to just knock the frickin' daylights out of her, which looks really cool. 
And in the background, you have the classic I Want You um, Uncle Sam poster. It's really, really cool. And it just reads, The Battle You Never Thought You'd See. Turning to the inside front cover, it's essentially the same picture that's on the front, but now it's just it's just the penciled and inked outlines of Superman and Wonder Woman. You don't have the Uncle Sam or any of that. Um, just great, great piece of artwork, though. And for Superman, it says, Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as mild-mannered newsman Clark Kent and battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. For Wonder Woman, we've got Granted the Wisdom of Athena, the Strength of Hercules, and the Beauty of Mercury, Concealed in the Beauty, I'm sorry, the Speed, rather, of Mercury, Concealed in the Beauty of Aphrodite by the Gods. Princess Diana renounced her immortality to enter man's world as the greatest Amazon of all, Wonder Woman. Created by William Moulton Marston. An untold epic of World War II by Jerry Conway, writer Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. And Dan Atkins, artist. Is it Jasper or Gasper? I always say Gasper. Gasper. Saladino, letter. Jerry Serpy, I think is his name. Uh, colorist. Joe Orlando, editor. If you know different on Joe uh, Jerry Serpy than. Uh, Definitely throw it out there, but I I think that's his name, but I'm not sure. The book opens uh, to a full-page splash depicting unknown hands, and I guess they're supposed to be ours as as the reader, holding a secret dossier containing files, photos, and long suppressed top secret info about the events of June 11th, 1942, in which Superman and Wonder Woman battled in Chicago. Now, instead of chapters, this book is divided into reports. And report one is from Admiral Chester W. Nimitz, Commander-in-Chief of the Pacific Ocean Areas, and it opens at the Battle of Midway, where an American aircraft carrier is being attacked by Japanese fighter planes when suddenly a voice rings out from the decks saying, Holy crow! It's Superman! Yes, it's Superman and the strange visitor from another planet who just happened to be on the scene as reporter Clark Kent makes quick work of the enemy aircraft after determining them to be robotically controlled. Now, right up front, a few things have to be noted. While this cl- uh, story clearly must take place on Earth 2, that fact is never specifically mentioned in the course of the story. Also, Superman, while much more serious, determined, short-tempered, and even a little bit bloodthirsty, is drawn to look pretty much as he looked in the regular Superman titles of the time, and specifically as he looked in, say, Spider-Man, or excuse me, Superman versus the Amazing Spider-Man, but in Garcia Lopez's own style, of course. What I mean is this Superman does not sport the stylized S 
or the shorter cape that later became the um, the distinguishing characteristics and kind of the visual language of Earth 2 Superman as we came to know him in the 70s. Um, I'll mention other oddities and inconsistencies, that sort of thing, as we go along. So leaving the mopping up operations to the aircraft carrier's crew, Superman dives deep beneath the uh, surface of the ocean and literally plows straight through the side of a Japanese sub, breaching the vessel and allowing a torrent of water to rush in. The commander orders immediate emergency rise before the vessel floods, and several panicky minutes later, he's delivered by the scruff of his neck to Admiral Nimitz on the shore of Midway Island. Nimitz, who was in conversation with Lois Lane, excuses himself and he and the Man of Steel go inside with their prisoner. Lane, who was already pissed at the missing Clark Kent, silently fumes. Inside, Superman tells Nimitz that the sub-commander has already spilled the beans to him, that this whole attack was just a diversionary tactic to allow a special sub to slip through American defenses and allow a highly skilled Japanese agent through to partner up with a German agent to disrupt something called the Manhattan Project. Nimitz, shaken, sends Superman to Washington to see the Secretary of War. Superman alights outside the War Department where MPs order the Man of Tomorrow to halt. Thankfully, the Secretary is on hand to order the men to let our hero pass, and after he and Superman go inside to talk, the soldiers admit to themselves that they had no idea how they were supposed to stop him. <laughs> and that leaves, leads to Report 2. Wonder Woman. Agent's name, Michelson. Identification, FBI 3A. Date, 6-10-1942. Agent Superior was Hoover. And the authorization is Director. We have Wonder Woman. Happening upon Nazi agents attacking a professor near the White House. Sure, she was on her way to visit her mother, but this is far more urgent. As FBI agents escort the professor away, Wonder Woman lights into the Nazis, but is shocked to discover that they are wearing explosive belts. She ends up she ends the fight decisively, and by decisively, I mean she throws a car at them, causing <laughs> them to explode. As the FBI thanks Wonder Woman, her attention is drawn to a car speeding away. She takes off after it, tracking the sedan to Washington Airport. Instead of flying down and stopping the car, Wonder Woman dramatically makes a phone call to Major Steve Trevor under her identity of Diana Prince and cancels their meeting that night. One hour and 48 minutes later, she is in Grand Central Station as Diana Prince and spots another group of men hassling an old man. One quick change to Wonder Woman and she takes the thugs down, even getting a little bullets and bracelets in there on her. The man, a one Albert Einstein thanks her for her assistance. Soon the FBI shows up and takes Einstein into protective custody. Later, Diana Prince is informed that the FBI says there was no attack on their agents that afternoon, which pisses her off, but good. She does some digging and finds a reference to an Agent Michelson and the Manhattan Project. Another lead turns up nothing, and all of the secrecy is worrying Wonder Woman. For the good of humanity, she must learn what is hidden? Report 3, The Baron and the Samurai. Off the coast of Mexico, Baron Blitzkrieg and his faithful dwarf companion Zwerg await the arrival of their partner in this adventure. 
While they wait, the Baron obliges us with a recap of his origin story from World's Finest number 246, in which we learn, essentially, that the Baron was a not-nice guy who, along with such hobbies as running a concentration camp, was a favored follower of Uncle Adolf. One day, a young Jew threw a jar of acid in his face, and uh, even the writer admits that he has no idea how a uh, concentration camp Jew got a hold of a jar of acid. And while all DeFear's horses and all DeFear's men couldn't put the Baron's face back together again, (laughs) (laughs) they did give him a, a Doctor Doom mask, one of the coolest, if colorblindest, costumes in comic books, and hooked him up with superpowers. So now... He's Baron Blitzkrieg, Nazi Ubermensch. Their partner arrives. He is Sumo, the samurai, because that's not racist at all. They go inside for tea and just in time see a valued prisoner escaping. Blitzkrieg subdues the escapee, chastises his idiotic men, and gives the man over to Sumo for questioning. Sumo, using some sort of mind whammy power, gets the man to spill his guts. Turns out he has something to do with the Manhattan Project and reveals the locations of two sections of a model for an atomic fission reactor. One is in Los Alamos. The other is in Oak Ridge. And I really wish at some point in this story, Baron Blitzkrieg had been like, Oak Ridge? Where the hell is Oak Ridge? But he never does. He does, though, congratulate Sumo for doing what his men had been unable to do. And now, of course, together, they are going to steal the models and conquer the whole frickin' world. Which leads us to Report 4, Confrontation. Dun-dun-dun. Which actually has some really cool lettering for Confrontation. That is. It looks like uh, the old Adventure Comics uh, logo right around the time that Supergirl was the, was mm-hmm. the lead feature. Diana Prince enters the Intelligence Command Center to get the answer she is looking for. Can I ask you something real quick? Sure. Does this room remind you of the one from 13 Days? Yes. Okay. I will agree with that. This is a whole new language! (laughs) I'm just reminded of the night I spent exchanging 13 Days quotes with my friend Rob. I saw saw that, yeah. Uh, Diana Prince enters the Intelligence Command Center to get the answer she is looking for. She creates a diversion with a fuse box and manages to get the info on the Manhattan Project that she had been searching for. Diana escapes via an elevator shaft and returns to her office where she reads the contents of the file and is shocked, shocked I tell you, by what she discovers. She knows she has to do something. But what? What do you do in instances like this? Do you go see your pastor? Do you write Dear Abby? No. Wonder Woman flies home to Paradise Island to get some advice from her mother. She explains that the Americans are building an atomic bomb capable of destroying a hundred thousand lives indiscriminately. Wonder Woman fears that once that box is opened, it will free more terrors than Pandora ever did. She insists they must do something. Hippolyta leads her daughter away and says that they will talk this over and decide the best course of action. Meanwhile, Superman returns to the Daily Planet building (laughs) and resumes his identity as Clark Kent. He is greeted by Lois, who is pissed off that she rushed all the way back from Midway for nothing, as Clark had never shown up with the photo she thought he was going to scoop her with. 
Perry White comes in and yells at his reporters for bickering in the newsroom, and he tells them to get back to work, which they do. Their typing is interrupted by Perry rushing into the newsroom again to announce that Chicago is under attack, not by Nazis, but by... Wonder Woman? Clark thinks that the Midway story will have to wait, because this is a job for Superman. Report 5. Superman streaks out of the sky on a gorgeous double-page spread to find Wonder Woman using a lamppost to take down a building, carelessly endangering civilian lives. Our hero, invoking the name of the Justice Society of which he and Wonder Woman are members, and of the only real reference to Earth 2 in this entire book, however vague, tries to reason with the upset Amazon, but she uses her really sturdy lamppost to bat the caped Kryptonian clear across town and into the drink. Wet and pissed off, Superman cannot believe that she hit him. She actually hit him. No one treats Superman that way. And I mean no one, he screams as he belts her through the brick facade of the building she was attacking. By the way, I just want to point out the super mellow citizenry that uh, really take this whole thing in stride. It's just got to be noted. Look at page 37, man. These people should be running in mortal terror for their lives. Instead, that couple below Superman's leg are just going, Whoa, dude. <laughs> just, what is wrong with these people running for your lives? The two most powerful people on the planet are throwing down. Anyway, <laughs> Wonder Woman picks herself up and is able to confuse and confound the action ace with her I hate men girl power crap long enough to grab him by the front of his super shirt, flip him over, and fling him ass over tea kettle right out the window. Wonder Woman goes on and on about how men are going to blow up the world and her mom told her to put a stop to it. Superman charges back in and actually tries, despite their obviously being on opposing sides of this issue, to listen to Wonder Woman's argument and understand her viewpoint, but then the building falls down around their ears and he calls a timeout. If they are going to beat the holy hell out of each other, they need to find someplace else to take it. Agreed, says Wonder Woman, but where? Nonchalantly, gazing at the sky, Superman says, oh, well, we'll think of something. Meanwhile, at Los Alamos and Oak Ridge, which is in Tennessee, by the way, Sumo and Baron Blitzkrieg prepare to carry out their simultaneous attacks. Unaware, uh, yeah, unaware of what is about to go down back on Earth, Superman and Wonder Woman approach their agreed-upon battle site, the moon. All right, now, before we continue with this, two things. Um, Jerry Conway, I love you, buddy, but you refer here to the moon as Earth's sister, and uh, no, I don't think so. And... It's 238,900 miles from the Earth to the moon. So I just want to know, what the hell kind of awesome gas mileage does that robot plane get anyway? I mean, she literally flies her little prop plane all the way to the friggin' moon. That's either really cool or really goofy, and I can't decide which. 
So anyway, she and uh, Superman land amongst this uh, ancient alien ruins that would make Richard C. Hoagland crap himself, and it is on. Superman takes a uh, kind of a semi-cheap <laughs> shot here by plying into, or plowing rather, into the uh, invisible plane while Wonder Woman is distracted by their surroundings. She's not clear, but then she picks her air bubble helmeted self up off the ground and... Uh, on a once again full page splash delivers a spectacular double fisted kapow to the man of steel that sends him flying into the ruins there he snatches up a massive glowing green column now thankfully for a change it's not kryptonite but it is radioactive and wonder woman and conway i suspect try to get the crazed Kryptonian to realize the irony of the situation by pointing out that the people who once lived here and died here probably died in an atomic war. Superman, he's deeply moved by this revelation, and so he smashes her in the face with the column to prove it. <laughs> Meanwhile, on Earth, Superman and Baron Blitz, or excuse me, Sumo, rather, and Baron Blitzkrieg, uh, each... Uh, securing their... Uh, what the hell did I write? I screwed that all up. Anyway, they both uh, launch their attacks, and they each secure their uh, individual objectives. But as Baron Blitzkrieg sets out for his rendezvous, rendezvous with his Oriental ally, Sumo sets out for home. Report 6, Conflagration. Military officials are furious at the attack, the attacks on their most secret project and have one question. Where is Superman? An Amish astronomer has the answer. <laughs> Amish astronomy. Oh, Look up there. You gotta warn me before. <laughs> it's Mordecai Galileo, yes. I was about to say Jedediah. <laughs> Anyways, an astronomer has the answer. The moon. Fifteen minutes later, Wonder Woman and Superman stop fighting long enough to notice lights flashing across the United States. In short order, Superman discovers that it's Morse code for SOS. Meanwhile, at Blitzkrieg's Mexican headquarters, a.k.a. Taco Bell, <laughs> the Baron is furious that Sumo has yet to arrive. But it's okay, because they have those Baja Mountain Dew... <laughs> freezy things I had one of those really today <laughs> Blitzkrieg swears that if Sumo has betrayed him he will track down and skin him alive he's also very upset that not only do they have a Doritos taco but a Cool Ranch Doritos taco <laughs> which just sounds gross back in Washington Superman and Wonder Woman meet with Secretary of War Harry Stimson who apparently just doesn't care that a couple hours before Wonder Woman was tearing ass in Chicago Stimson informs the heroes that a smaller working model of a device capable of creating a sustained nuclear reaction has been stolen. The problem is that the model is highly unstable and might explode upon activation. Insert sexual joke here. <laughs> Superman and Wonder Woman agree to put their personal problems aside until they have, you know, saved the world. Wonder Woman, armed with a Geiger counter, takes off in one direction and battles some Japanese Zeros. Superman takes off to Louisiana, probably around New Orleans, way back up in the hill among the Evergreens, 
There stood a log cabin made of earth and wood, and with it a boy was the name Johnny B. Good. Now, he never ever learned to read or write so well, but he could play a guitar just like a ring in a bell. Actually, he travels to New Orleans and, with the help of a drunk, finds out where the Nazis are hiding. <laughs> mean- I don't know which one was more silly there. Meanwhile, Wonder Woman arrives in Honshu, Japan, and is greeted by Sumo. Wonder Woman demands that he hand over the reactor half that he has. Sumo refuses as a matter of honor. Sumo reveals his origin to Wonder Woman, and soon the two are fighting with Sumo holding his own against the Amazon princess. Back in New Orleans, Superman is doing a fantastic job of taking the Nazis down, but soon Baron Blitzkrieg shows up, and soon they're doing their own bit of fighting. Superman quickly discovers that Blitzkrieg is not invulnerable at that moment, and thinks, isn't that just fascinating? Back in Japan, Wonder Woman has her hands full with Sumo. She tries to lasso him, but he evades that, and the fight is on again. Wonder Woman is finally able to bring Sumo down on his own terms. Back in New Orleans, Superman and Barilyn Blitzkrieg take up the take take their fight to the streets like a Michael McDonald song. Superman has noticed that Blitzkrieg is only using one power at a time, so the Man of Steel uses the five blow combination and owns the Baron in short order. Soon, Superman is confronted by Baron's hetero life mate Zor, or at least. <laughs> the agent that has been posing as Zwer, whatever that name is. <laughs> One briefing later, Wicket. Superman is... Off- Just call him Wicket. Wicket. <laughs> Willow. Uh, One briefing later, Superman is off with the reactor half and the Baron. Superman tells Wonder Woman that he'll take the device back to Oak Ridge, while she takes the bad guys back to Washington. Wonder Woman isn't so sure that's a good idea, and the two argue the point, as Baron Blitzkrieg activates the device. The Baron tries to bring both halves together, which knocks Superman and Wonder Woman back, and claims the weapon in the name of the Reich. Sumo doesn't think so, and announces that if the Emperor can't have the device, no one can as he tackles the Baron. Superman uses his X-ray vision to free him and Wonder Woman from the effects of the device, but in addition to doing that, it turns the model into a live bomb. She cries out for the Baron and Sumo to escape, but the two refuse to heed her warnings continue to fight as the device detonates. From a distance, Superman and Wonder Woman watch the mushroom cloud, and in one hellish moment, the sun seems to kiss the sea. The morning after, Superman and Wonder Woman are drunk and feel kind of regretful. (laughs) Wait a second, no. The morning after, Superman and Wonder Woman meet with President Roosevelt. Superman brought her there to get his personal assurance that the U.S. will never use the atomic bomb as an actual weapon of war, but will only use the weapon as a demonstrative capacity to end the threat of war forever. Roosevelt promises that as long as he is president, he will never use the bomb to kill. Never. The two heroes leave, and Superman asks if Wonder Woman is satisfied. Wonder Woman says she's a woman, and is thus never satisfied. (laughs) I don't care if we get letters. That was funny. Okay. (laughs) And so goddamn true. Wow. Wonder Woman says she trusts him, but knows that the bomb is an inevitability. She adds that she can't help but be frightened, but even if Pandora had never opened her box, (laughs) somebody, someday someone should have. Once the hidden box exists, it must be opened. If not by Pandora, then by someone else. If not this president, then another. And once the demon escapes, they can never be recaptured. Not if they try and try. Till the end of time. 
Does yours have like typewriter type print across the spine of that last page? Yes, A N C E Superman versus Wonder Woman C. Yeah, nineteen seventy seven. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And in the back, you have about the creators with pictures of Joe Orlando, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, and Jerry Conway. Yep. And the back cover is Superman and Wonder Woman just busting up a building. This was on eBay not long ago. The actual original cover of this was on eBay. And I don't know that it sold, but I know it was listed for a pretty penny. I want to say it was a couple thousand dollars, if I'm not mistaken. I'm not surprised. But, uh, yeah, really, really. God, I I wish I had that kind of money. Mm -hmm. Because I like this piece of art. Because he's got her in a total, like, I can't breathe headlock. And she's basically like sticking her fingers up his nose and pushing his head back. It's it's a really good. They're knocking the hell out of whichever building this is. It's really cool. I always like the Uncle Sam poster because it's it's him pointing, saying, "I want you to stop the war between Wonder Woman and Superman." I think that's. Oh, it says also to save the world. I like that. I think uh, that's cool. Uncle Sam, I, I I love you to death. I ain't getting in the middle of that. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna let that work itself out. <laughs> That is something you kind of stare at and go, hmm, well, uh, let's get the hell out of here before we die. Right. <laughs> um, this, this one was a hard one to approach for notes because there's only so many times you can write, oh my God, this page is gorgeous. Exactly, yes. Because uh, <laughs> it mean, is one. Well, out of all of the treasuries that we've you and I have covered, this is definitely the prettiest. I think this book greatly informed my impressions of Superman as mm-hmm. a child. Um, the look, most definitely, because this era of Garcia Lopez is one of my absolute favorites um, in regards to Superman. I love how Superman looks in this book. I, I think he just looks spectacular he's just the way i like him to look he's not um fat he's not barrel chested but he is huge and he's thick necked without looking you know like a like a big pug or like a big bodybuilder he's just friggin massive he's he's huge um i love the look of him here and you know in, in just a short while after this this Superman would walk right off the page and into the films. I mean, this looks like Chris Reeve before Chris Reeve even made the scene. And I, yeah. I like that. I, I really like that look. He he just he draws such an awesome, awesome Superman. While he's not my absolute favorite Superman artist, he is definitely right up there. I would say probably in the top three you know definitely the top five but probably even the top three because i really have always loved his superman really really great well we've talked about it before i mean jose luis garcia lopez praise be his name did the you know the merchandising art for dc for decades so you know if you saw anything with superman on it uh, at the store whether it be a box of animal cookies or you know like the superpowers action figures it was all his artwork. Right. 
And once you see something again and again, subconsciously, it's going to become the right version. Yep. See, what's funny for me, and one of the great things about, um, you know, podcasting in general, but this show in particular, is really getting a chance to to delve into books like this and learn the history that you maybe never knew but thought you did. See, I always assumed this book was a natural outgrowth of the work he was doing on Superman around this time. Turns out it's completely the other way around. He basically got the gig on later Superman stories because of this. This was his one big shot, so he took it. And there's a really great article about this in Back Issue Magazine number 61 that tells all about the origin of this book. And he basically says that he wasn't really sure he was up to the task, but he would be damned if he was going to let the opportunity slip by, you know. And this book, again, something I never realized was the first Superman versus book after Superman versus the Amazing Spider-Man. I never realized that at all. I actually would have guessed that this was the last one only because it is Superman versus Wonder Woman, you know. I always figured it. Uh, the order I thought it went in was Superman, Spider-Man, then um, Muhammad Ali, and then Shazam, and then this one. This is actually the first one, so that really surprised me. Um, and that's not to slight the book, because I love this book. I really did, but I just always, you know, it's Wonder Woman. So I always thought this was probably, um, you know, the the last one, because his foe, while it's a great story and I love the art and I love the battle between the two of them, she's just not, at least to my mind, she's not on the same level as the other people that he fought in the other books. You know what I mean? She's, I don't know, somehow Wonder Woman to me has always been kind of second tier. I don't know why. I, wow. Okay. I just, well, I, I don't mean that as a slight. I just. Uh, no, I, I didn't think you did. It's just, you know, I, I think of her as, you know, one of the big, you know, big seven. Well, so. well even there, though, I mean. Well, I don't know. That'll get into a whole different thing. But um, um, do you want to back and forth notes or how do you want to do notes? Uh, we can back and forth it and go through the sections because I've, I've got little specific things every once in a while. But sure. the, again, it's just the biggest thing about this story that I guess we can just get kind of get out of the way and just talk about the gorilla in the room is that <clears throat> I remember when we did the... Um, Crisis on Earth Prime story, we spent a little bit of time talking about the fact that it seemed that the writers kind of had an agenda, not a bad agenda, but an agenda nonetheless to basically say nuclear weapons, nuclear weapons bad, right? and uh, we shouldn't have made them in the first place, and that's Wonder Woman's entire, um, you know, her, her entire motivation for the story is to stop the Manhattan Project. And even at the end, when she's basically resigned herself to the fact that this is going to happen whether we like it or not. So hopefully it just won't be as bad as we want it to. I, I'm i very torn on atomic weapons in general. Uh, I spent most of my young life being scared of them. I mean, like, petrified. Right. Like, horribly, like, n- screaming nightmares at night. And yet, I think of my grandfather, my dad's dad, who died a couple years ago. He was a Marine in World War II. He was in the Pacific. And shortly before they dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima, he was sitting on a boat 
ready to invade. He was going to be in the first wave. And he told my father, who later told me, that once they got on the island, or once they got on the mainland and they saw those fortifications, they they knew they were dead. If they had had to invade, all of those men would be dead. Mm -hmm. And I think about that. I think of the fact that my father was born in 1944, uh, was living in Alabama at this time, and that if his father had died at that point, his life would have been forever changed. They probably never would have went to Europe. They probably never would have traveled as they did. He would not have joined the military at 18, 19 years old. He wouldn't have gone overseas and come back. He wouldn't have been stationed near Frederick, Maryland. He wouldn't have met my mother. And I do that math. And I'm like, okay, it's quite possible I never would have been born. Right. And that always gets me, because I like being alive. Uh, (laughs) I like being born. And I I think I'm pretty good at it at this point. And I'm not saying in any way, shape, or form that there weren't innocent civilians killed in both Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I'm not going to say that that's not a tragedy, because it is. But I can never stand up and really say bad on that. Because I'm just too personally connected to it, really. Right. And that kind of bothered me in this story. But then, uh, but then, I, then I started thinking about it, and I'm like, well, no, he's trying to make a point. It's a good point to make that nuclear weapons are a Pandora's box. We opened it. There's nothing we can do about it. Hopefully we all won't die in a nuclear fireball. So, but that was my main note for the entire story was at heart, even though this is a fun slam fest where everyone's fighting at heart, this is an anti nuke story. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I even, as a kid, I picked up on that. Um, It didn't bother me as much as a kid as it kind of does now, because I feel now that it's a bit preachier than I used to feel as a kid. Cause I think a lot of that preachiness went right over my head. I was yeah. more enthr- you know, enthralled by the action and the, and the bust them up in this, but now reading it as an adult. Yeah. I, I definitely see where there's a bit of a, a, a political ax being ground, but what bothers me more than any of that, because I think I've made my feelings on on retroing history very plain by this point, so I won't belabor the point. But what bugged me more was while Frank Miller takes the bulk of the blame, and I think rightfully so, for making an entire generation of people see Superman as some sort of dupe of, of the political machine, you know, whichever one is operating America at the time. I see a bit of that here. I I won't say this book is to blame for it, but Superman for all his piss and vinegar in this story, he's a bit naive about the bomb. He's, In a lot of ways, I feel like maybe the role should be reversed and Superman should be the one that's concerned about the bomb and Wonder Woman maybe being the one trying to stop him, you know, from from interfering with the government. But I I don't know. I'm I'm torn feeling that way, too. You're absolutely right. And I'll tell you why. She is an agent of the government. That's right, yeah. She is a soldier, even even though she's not a soldier and infantryman. She is in the military, military intelligence. Yeah. 
in the in World War Two, and Superman's fighting at Midway, which <laughs> we'll get into that. Um, not not that it's a bad thing, but how how this does not jibe with what would later come in All Star Squadron. At not all. at all. Yeah, that's. Um, I'm glad you mentioned that because I totally forgot to write a note on that. But yeah, <laughs> turning that first page, that was the first thing I thought of was wait 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 I thought Superman wasn't allowed to participate in the war yeah yeah and, and that's why in general this is kind of its own little world right uh, I'm sure I'm sure if we looked in our crisis companions we'd find the world that this exists in as, as a matter of fact I'm sure it's listed because God knows they listed everything else well I was going to ask you to to the best of your knowledge is this ever referenced anywhere uh, it's going to be interesting when we get to the sumo issues of All-Star Squadron. Because he appears in that title. Oh, shit. Yes, that's right. I totally forgot about that. Because I had a note that he does return. Because this doesn't kill him. He comes back in Wonder Woman number 241. And while I don't own or have never read that story, somewhere I believe I read that in that story he truly does die. But see, this all takes place past all-star squadron so it's not giving it's not taking that history into account so you're right i totally forgot that retroactively will meet sumo in all-star squadron you're you're absolutely right i completely forgot about that well um to finish my first thought before we get into that hornet's nest sorry um (laughs) no no I, i i distracted myself the uh the thing is is that diana prince may have her own moral objections to something, but theoretically the reporter who is not a member of the military in any kind of official capacity, it's very clear in this book that he isn't because they tell him he can't enter that one building uh, because civilians aren't allowed to enter. You would think he would be the one doing the digging on this. However, when you think about this, how the story plays out, she has the better access to the files because she has the clearance to get in there. So it's a weird thing where you're right. It should be her who's on the side of the right. Um, But here's another question. Do you think... Now, Superman goes after Wonder Woman on his own. So that's a separate issue. But if Superman's tearing up Chicago looking for something... Do you think the government would send a woman, even a superpowered one, into action? Or would she go on her own? Hmm. Uh, wait, never mind. That's a stupid question because Wonder Woman doesn't work for the government. Never mind. <laughs> I asked a question that I had the answer for and I basically argued argued myself out. Going back to the other thing we were talking about, this was a good four years almost before All-Star Squadron came about. Right. So, this is also before Roy Thomas was really working for DC in an official capacity. I say that because it's kind of an open secret that he helped plot out the first couple issues of All-Star Comics uh, when they did the revamp back in 1975. So, there you go. Uh, I think at that time, they also had not done the marriage of the Earth one Earth 2 Superman yet. That came in 1978. In Action Comics number 584. Mm-hmm. Five, no, 484. Excuse me. Not 584. 584 was the first issue of the post-crisis universe. Um, 
484 was, you know, they have the whole thing and it's a daily star. And really that was where the earth Two Superman began to kind of take shape. And he works for the daily star and George Taylor is his editor. Cause here he very clearly works for the daily planet. Right. You see the planet and he's, and there's Perry white. So to me, even if they refer to this incident later, and even though we see Baron Blitzkrieg all over the place, in All-Star Squadron, this is very clearly not associated with All-Star Squadron. To my mind. I would buy that. I would buy that. I, I'm that was a long pause for an agreement. I'm sorry, I was, I was drinking. <clears throat> my throat's killing me. Um, no, I would agree with that, but it's going to be interesting, though, to see, see, I, I was going to say, it's going to be interesting to see if it's ever referenced. I, I don't think it will be, because the crisis is going to happen in, I'm trying to remember, in all-star continuity, what year that would be. I guess it would be 1942, but it's going to be earlier in 1942 then yeah. this story is taking place. So this event will be retconned before All-Star Squadron can make it to it. So yeah, I think you're right. It, more than likely, it's never referenced in anything. But it's interesting that the two antagonists in the story were used in All-Star Squadron. That I like, which was one of the, one of the primary reasons I really wanted to cover this. This was my introduction to Baron Blitzkrieg and probably one of the reasons he he's always to me in my mind been bigger than he really is because he's kind of an, an obscure largely forgotten comic book villain because he only really ever had a handful of appearances he had this one he had a couple in world's finest he had a couple in all-star and I think that was essentially it so he's not a heavy hitter he's not you know, a, a big deal. But to me, he was because he fought Superman in this and he belted the hell out of Superman in this. And I, I so for that reason, I always liked him and thought he was a bigger deal, you know, because I was a kid when I read this. So I've always liked the Baron because of this story, you know, and it doesn't hurt that he's drawn by uh Garcia Lopez in this story either. Yeah. I, I love the way Lopez makes him look. Mm -hmm. um, it's nothing against the artists that we've been seeing with him, because I think everybody has done a really good job with him. But that, that full-page splash of his origin yes. is just gorgeous. I mean, it's just... And, and, and I kept... I actually, when I was reading this, had to stop every once in a while, and it kind of interrupted the flow of the story, because I would just get to a page, and I'd be like... Oh, that is so pretty. And my wife uh, came up to me tonight as I was typing up the synopsis uh, before we started recording. And she's like, so did they print that to make you feel like you're a little kid reading comics again? And I laughed because it's kind of a funny joke. But to a certain extent, when I was sitting in bed reading this, I was just like, I felt like a little kid again. Oh, absolutely. I had this giant comic in my hand and it was... And and the and the great thing about these is is you know you know the the first Superman versus the Amazing Spider Man uh, had some fantastic art in it. I um, think that the second one had better art. I think John Buscema had a beautiful Superman, had a really good Clark Kent, 
But when I got to this one, it's just and 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 you know Lopez did the the Batman versus Incredible Hulk one too. So you know that one looked good. But when I got to this one, it's almost like at some points the story like it, the story could have sucked worse than it did, and I and I think the story holds together quite well. Uh, because basically the entire point is to get these two to fight. Right. And yes, there are some moments of silliness. I'm sorry, going to the moon and there being an ancient civilization on there is a Marvel trick. That is such a Marvel trick. That is such a Stan Lee putting the Fantastic Four on the moon and there's this ancient civilization there. And I love the fact that you referenced what's his name, uh, in your notes. (laughs) Hoagland. yeah, because it's just like yeah. That, I mean, I, I mean, because this is like this is the seventies, so that whole ancient you know alien astronaut you know like uh, ancient astronauts and stuff like that. Uh, that of all people, my father buys into, which surprised the hell out of me when we had that conversation. Um. Uh, it just <laughs> it, it just it just stood out. Them going to the moon was unnecessary. Uh, the only thing that served is we're going to get them far away from here to a place where they can't hurt anybody because, boy, did they tear up a good section of Chicago. But that was the point. It was the point to get them to fight. And I was surprised, and I know you like this, uh, and I kind of liked it too, but only from a point of, wow, that's kind of exciting and different. Superman was vicious in this in the, in that fight. Mm-hmm. Once she hit him, it was like on. He didn't care that it was a woman. Uh, he was going to take her down no matter what. And I'm just like, wow, that's brave. See, I like uh, one of my favorite sequences of the entire issue is where he rips that column. You know, he just rips it right out of the ground and smashes her right in the face with it. Now, they're on the moon. She's got a, a, a breathing apparatus on, which is essentially a big glass bubble over her head. And he smashes her in the face with this this column that looks like it's made out of solid rock. So if he busted her helmet, would she die right then and there? <laughs> so it looks as if not only is he not pulling punches because she's a woman, it looks like he is intent on not just taking her down, but taking her out, you know, that he might be perfectly willing to kill her if necessary, because that, that panel of her being smashed by that column is just brutal. I mean, it, the way it's, it's drawn and colored, it almost looks like he just pulps her with that thing. Cause there's like a spray of pink behind the impact it almost looks like she just, and that's it, you know? So he he really is vicious in this. But again, that that owes into my enjoyment of it. I actually liked that in this, that, you know, Superman, in my opinion, is damn scary when he gets pissed. Yes, and he gets he pissed in this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. You know what he didn't have? Uh, glowing red eyes. Yes, never. Well, no, I take that back. He doesn't never have it, but he has it when it's appropriate because there is one great, and this was another thing I always really liked about this right from when I was a kid, is when he and the Baron uh, fight and the Baron 
knocks the hell out of him and knocks him into the the upper floor. Damn, I'm struggling to find what the hell page did that happen. Here it is. It's page 60. The Baron belts him. He flies upstairs, and the Baron stands there, you know, with his hands on his hips and, you know, blah, 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 the fatherland, Nazi, blah, 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 blah. And Superman, is, he's just crouched down in a very weird pose for Superman and just lasers at, at uh, Baron Blitzkrieg with his heat vision and sets a table on fire. That is a great uh, sequence in this. I really like that. And the next panel, if this was a modern comic, Superman's eyes would be all glowy right there in that little inset panel on 61, but it's not. He's just, he's got a really kind of sinister look on his face where he's thinking, ah, so you're not invulnerable, eh? I like that. That's a great panel. The um, the other kind of thing that I, I'm, I don't know how you would have fit into the story, so I realized why they didn't. We see a lot of Diana Prince. We see very little of Clark Kent. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, her job kind of takes her more into the military anyway, so that's okay. But it would have been kind of cool to see kind of Clark Kent maybe fishing around. But, again, there's really no room for that. But it was nice seeing the Daily Planet staff that we did. I mean, we got Lois, and she's all pissed, um, looking very 1940s. We got Perry White, who looks pretty much like he does contemporary in the contemporary you know world that this book was published in showing that he's really not changed his fashion sense in about 30 years (laughs) Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that mind you but it was just kind of cool to see that you know in addition to having them fight in addition to having them fight excuse me villains that were not necessarily theirs right yeah it's not like it's you know, Dr. Psycho or, 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 or Silver Swan or Cheetah and Lex Luthor or Bizarro or Parasite or, you know, Metallo or Brainiac or anything. It's, it's these two villains that kind of match their personalities. Sumo being very honor-bound and being samurai and being raised in that culture, whereas Wonder Woman was raised as a warrior as well. And then you have Superman, who is a Superman, and then you have Baron Blitzkrieg, who is a Nazi Superman. So it may, and, you know, who has a similar power set. So you know, there, there, there's so much good about this story that even the wonky parts of them being on the moon and seeing the SOS and all that, just I just gloss over it because it doesn't matter. Right. Because the, them fighting, yes, is the point because it's called Superman versus Wonder Woman, but really you want to see them team up to beat the bad guy, which ultimately they do. I like it. I like it a whole lot. I always have. I've always been a real big fan of this. You know, you raised an interesting point about Clark Kent that I hadn't thought of before because I was going to say that I always felt like there was just enough Clark Kent in this. However, it might have been interesting, although it might have felt a little bit like they were following the uh, Superman versus the Amazing Spider-Man model maybe a little bit too closely if they had done this. But it would have been interesting seeing the heroes interact with each other in their civilian identities in a chapter or two as well, without knowing who each other was maybe even making a little bit of a love connection as Clark Kent and Diana Prince before they fought as Superman and Wonder Woman. That could have been very interesting, but see, we got something sort of, you know, similar to that in Superman, Spider-Man where, (laughs) 
you know, Clark and uh, and Peter met, uh, you know, and had interactions and stuff as those characters before. Or was it before or was it after? I forget. It was before, and then they all went on a double date afterwards, and then in the yeah, that's one, right, they don't yeah, meet up at all. That's right. Just, yeah, it's just Superman and Spider Man. The only reason I remember that so clearly is uh, this morning I listened to the very excellent coverage of the second Superman Spider Man meetup over on Hey Kids Comics. Mm-hmm. It's part of the Two True Freaks Network. Now, I need to go back and look and see what the page count was on Superman versus Spider Man because I'm thinking that book has to be way thicker than this because this is a good 72 pages and granted it really moves you know the story really flies but it also feels lighter than uh than superman so it just seems like a lot of stuff happens in superman versus spider-man as opposed to this one so i'm wondering what what the comparison is page wise because as much as i like this it, it there could have been more to it too. I mean, the story—it's—it's it, kind of light on story, don't you think? This one, yeah, I would say so. I mean, it was—it was definitely an action piece more than anything else. And uh, I'll say one thing for uh, Garcia Lopez—I'm not a real big fan of Wonder Woman from this time period, as in like finding her particularly attractive or anything. But he draws an awesome Wonder Woman because to me. My Wonder Woman is the George uh, Perez Wonder Woman of post-crisis. That's the one I've always thought was the most attractive, although his Wonder Woman's pretty cute. I mean, he does you a pretty good job. You are absolutely right, sir. Superman versus The Amazing Spider-Man was 96 pages. Ah, okay. Not a lot longer then, but yeah, longer. Well, by a good fourth then. Mm-hmm. 24 pages. Yeah. Interesting. That's pretty much all I got on this. Oh, no, no, it's not. One other thing. This, as we're often, uh, you know, like to point out about reprints and such, at this point, as we record this, has not been reprinted. However, it's coming. There's, uh, I'm not sure what the format's going to be. I think it's going to be a soft cover trade paperback if i'm not mistaken but it is a reprint coming it's going to be called the adventures of superman jose luis garcia lopez and it's going to reprint a whole bunch of issues of um superman it's going to reprint the first four issues of dc comics presents plus number 17 where uh, he and um firestorm fight superman and firestorm fight um, I'm trying to remember. There's something else in there, too. Superman number 294, 301, 302, 307 to 309, and 347. DC Comics presents number 1 to 4 and 17, and All-Star Collector's Edition C54. That's it. That's it. All new. All new Collector's Edition. All new. Excuse me. <laughs> uh, 360 pages does not say if it is a hardcover or not. Uh, I'm going to assume that it's a soft cover because it's $40. Right. Oh, is that? Oh, holy cow. That's expensive. And it should be out now. Oh, no, in, in next week. That's oh, next week? Okay. This, which means by the time we have this out, it should be out. So. Oh, good. Well, this I would story's... say, uh, oh, yeah, some great stuff. I mean, 
Superman number 301. Oh, yes. God, that is beautiful. Great, great to, issue. I had the chance to interview Jerry Conway with, with our good friend Shag a couple years ago. And uh, I only went fan on him a couple of times, which I try not to do because you want to have the veneer of professionalism. Right. And one of the things was, I just have to say that I love your work on Superman. Uh, and I go, Superman number 301. And he kind of lit up a little bit talking about working with Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, and how he loved working with him. So I, I think... Uh, the, that that is a special issue on a number of fronts absolutely it is absolutely it is i've always loved that issue but yeah just just the fact that that reprint is going to have superman 301 dc comics presents number 17 and this book in it makes it worth the price that you'll pay for it plus like i said you know this issue is getting expensive to track down now. So yeah, I, I think I pay I pay twenty five for mine. Holy cow. And it's in good condition though. I mean it's very, very nice. Very little spine damage. Not too much yellowing. Um and remember folks that you can always go to two truefreaks.lipson.com and go through the Amazon link. Mm-hmm. Uh, where there is uh, books are always cheaper on Amazon. So you won't pay the forty dollars. You'll pay less than that for a handsome book hopefully they have not recolored them like they've done those neil adams collections uh, uh yeah using modern coloring techniques because i think that looks like crap most of the time and i am kind of worried about how this is going to look shrunk down yeah i was thinking about that too that that's that's the only thing is that you know you're reducing it from this you know glorious oversized to you know pretty much a standard comic size and these things were were drawn for the oversight. It's not like they just took a regular comic and just blew it up. No, they were specifically drawn, you know, on oversized board for an oversized book. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they look shrunk down. I've seen some of the old original um, Marvel vs. DC books when they got reprinted to a regular comic yeah, size, and I, it's not as impressive. Yeah, it loses something in the translation, I think. But because uh, that's how I first read all of those crossovers, except yeah, all of them really. But still, just the simple fact that this is finally getting reprinted is nice because this is a book that you know it deserves. It really does. I, I think this is a classic. And it's a, it's a beautiful representation. If nothing else, it's a beautiful representation of Garcia Lopez' time uh, on Superman. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad it's finally getting uh, you know getting wide release where people will be able to to check it out again on you know relatively inexpensively and everything. You've reached the end to another amazing episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America. You can find this show as well as an entire slew of other awesome podcasts on a wide variety of geek-related subjects from giant monsters to time lords to movie commentaries to fangirl interests at www.twotruefreaks.com. There you can hear Scott on such shows as Star Wars Monthly Monday, Star Trek Monthly Monday, Comics Monthly Monday, and occasionally Back to the Bins. Mike is on Comics Monthly Monday as well as hosting or co-hosting a few shows himself, like 
Views from the Long Box, which can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. And From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which can be found at www.fortressofbailytube.com. Scott and Mike have gigantic egos. They love to hear themselves talk. More importantly, at least according to their publicist, they want to hear from you. So you can reach the guys by writing to talesofthejsa at gmail.com. Would you like to sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks network shows? Simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com. Click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. You can also support this show and the Two True Freaks Network as a whole when you shop on Amazon. Again, simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon link. There is no additional charge to your purchase, and a portion of that will get kicked to the network. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. Thank you for listening and come back next time for another exciting episode of the tales of the Justice Society of America.